This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Bibles, Luke 22, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 10, further on in the New Testament, verse 16, that's page 957, so Luke 22, and then 1 Corinthians 10. These are passages <clears throat> that speak in regards to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table or Communion. Luke 22, Luke records the events and when the Supper was instituted. Beginning at verse 7, Luke 22, 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it, or better perhaps, not eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, let's turn over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Page 957, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the Apostle Paul. And speaking of the cup, he says in verse 16, The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now if you turn over to 1 Corinthians 11, just one chapter over in verse 23, here's the words that most of us are very familiar with. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and seek his, his grace. Lord, truly there are things in your word that are difficult to fully grasp. And the depth of the significance, Lord, of of the Lord's Supper of Communion is one of those, Lord. Help us to go deeper and deeper in our understanding of what you seek to do for us and you accomplish for us through the Supper. We ask, dear God, you would use this time to that end and that your Spirit would make us all receptive, that you would help us to understand and embrace the truth of your Word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, beloved, you know, last week's uh, text was weep with those who weep. And if you were here last, last week, I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, when someone in the body experiences such a profound loss and difficulty and pains, such as what the Lefflers experience, uh, we all feel it to some degree. Uh, we can't help it because there's a spiritual unity to which we belong. And so what happens to one of us happens to all of us. What happens to another happens to you. And we all feel it to some degree. And the reason we feel it again is what? Is that that spiritual unity, the reality of the fact that we are united to one another because we are united to Christ. Now, there are other ways that we experience this spiritual unity. And other ways that we can reinforce this spiritual unity. And a most significant way to do that is the Lord's Supper. Also known as communion and also known as the Eucharist in different, uh, in different um, traditions. It is at his table, it is at the Lord's table that we specially, visibly, dramatically show and renew this unity with one another uh, that is rooted in our unity with Christ by way of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced, beloved, I'm convinced that our experience of the Lord's Supper, what am I talking about? What we experience when we participate. I'm convinced that our experience of the Lord's Supper can be improved and deepened and when that happens the blessings of the Lord's Supper which God intends to give us are multiplied and when that happens then also our love for one another which is stressed in the Lord's Supper our unity can also be deepened and so over the next two weeks what I like to do is I like to have us reflect on the Lord's Supper both today and next Sunday uh, this morning, a theology of the Lord's Supper, and next Sunday, the practice of the Lord's Supper, culminating in our taking of the Lord's Supper together next Lord's Day. Now, I will say just right at the, at the start that I'm not going to be getting into all the different debatable historical arguments about the Lord's Supper. I will touch on some of those things, especially next week, but that's not gonna take up the majority of our time. We're gonna reflect on what the scriptures teach. 
So today I want to cover with you the biblical theological roots of the Lord's Supper and then the institution of the Lord's Supper. When was it founded? How? And then the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper. Those will be our three main headings this morning. So first of all, the, the, the biblical theological roots of the Lord's Supper. By now most of you know, you understand that the Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances or sacraments that were given to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. He instituted them. The first one is baptism and the second being the, Lord, the Lord's Supper. And though the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus, it didn't begin with him. That is to say, it has deep theological roots that go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. In other words, the idea of a covenant meal did not begin with Jesus, though Jesus um, instituted the Lord's Supper. And we benefit from understanding how it emerges from the various strands that are found in the Bible. So put your thinking caps on for a few minutes and uh, let me say this one statement. The Bible begins with the tree of life and the Bible ends with the tree of life. Now commenting on this, theologian Guy Waters makes this statement. It's about a short paragraph, so just hang in there. He says, this tree, he's talking about the tree of life, he says, this tree points to the great concern of the Bible which is what? Communion with God in the presence of God. For this we were created, and for this we were redeemed. In Adam, in Adam, we have forfeited our right to that chief blessing, right? He was our head. In Christ, we have been given title to that chief blessing blessing, right? He is the last Adam. Significantly, both Genesis and Revelation describe this tree of life as something that human beings eat and consume. He goes on to say, at significant moments in the Bible, in other words, as you trace the narrative of the Bible, human beings enjoy a meal with God. And they are invited to dine at a special table that God has spread for us. It's not surprising, he says, to see that God appointed under the Mosaic covenant, that's the covenant made with Israel, and under the new covenant, distinct meals. Distinct meals as covenant signs. The Passover with the Mosaic Covenant and the Lord's Supper with the New Covenant. Finally, he says, such meals capture something that sits at the very heart of covenant life with God. End quote. And what would that be? What's at the very heart of God? I shall be their God, they shall be my people. I will dwell in their midst. What's at the heart of God? What he created us for? Communion with God. Deep and profound intimacy with God. And nothing communicates connection and intimacy and communion like what? Table 
fellowship. It's been that way in many cultures throughout the ages, especially back in the ancient Near East. But even in our time, nothing communicates in intimacy like come in, here's a spread I've made for you, sit down, you're my guest, I've provided everything that you need. Now, with that in mind, to appreciate what he means by covenant signs, that these meals are covenant signs, we should review for a few minutes what both of those things mean, a covenant and a sign. And, and so, just let me remind you that the Bible storyline, right, moves from paradise lost to paradise regained, tree of life lost, tree of life regained, right? Separation from, from God to separate, to, to regaining intimacy with God. And covenants are the backbone or the skeletal structure of how this plan of restoration from paradise lost to paradise regained is going to come about. How God is going to bring about the redemption of his, the redemption of his people and the restoration of communion with him. The covenants contain God's promises of actions either completed or actions he will complete that, that speak to us how he is going to redeem us and restore fellowship with him. And so what is a covenant? Um, I'm speaking of the divine covenants that we find in the Bible. Uh, covenants were, were, were used by many people in the ancient world. You read the Bible, human beings made covenants. David made a covenant with his friend Jonathan. But we're talking about God's covenants with human beings, fallen human beings, the divine covenants. So what is a covenant? Well, it's defined in various ways depending on the context, but at the most basic level for today, uh, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. An oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. Two parties that bind, are bound together by, by an oath. A modern illustration of that would be marriage vows. Right? Marriage vows would be a modern illustration maybe of that uh, compared to contracts and things like that. More, that would be closer. However, there are, there, are, there are a lot of differences between God's divine covenants and, and our marriage vows. First of all, God's divine covenants are all initiated by God. Every one of them. God initiates the covenant. No one sits down and negotiates with God. How he's going to restore us to fellowship with him. How we're going to secure the forgiveness of our sins. No one does that. Scripture says all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There's none who understands. No, not one. There's not one who seeks after God. So God's covenants are initiated by his grace and his mercy and his love. And God's covenants are, are, are elective. What do I mean by that? He's the one who chooses who he's going to enter in the covenant with. Because we're all lost. It's God who called a man named Abraham, who was a moon worshiper, a pagan. He called him out of Ur and entered into a covenant with him and so forth. And so scripture explicitly mentions several divine covenants, such as the covenant with Noah the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses and, and the Israelites, the covenant which is the new covenant in Christ and so forth. These are the divine covenants. Now, what is a sign when he says that these meals function as covenant signs? 
Well, because we are because we are weak and we're tempted to disbelieve, because we tend to forget, because we allow the world's pressures on us to make us doubt the promises of God, what God has done, God has graciously appointed signs to accompany His covenant promises. And so signs are physical, tangible, visible, and perpetual reminders of God's goodness to his people. In other words, a sign points to the spiritual realities that are part of that covenant. And they're physical, they're tangible, they're, they're visible, they're given to the rest of our senses, if you would, right? And so if you take, for example, with marriage, a sign of the covenant of marriage would be a ring, right? It's a sign of purity, if it's gold, it's, it's, it's circular, it's a sign of it's a sign of permanence. You take the covenant with Noah. What was the promise that God made in the covenant with Noah? That he would never again uh, flood the earth and, and judge the world through a flood. And what was the sign that pointed to that? Wasn't that, but pointed to it. It was the rainbow, you see. It is visible. It's perpetual. Uh, that's a sign of the covenant with Noah. And so... Uh, the covenant with Moses has the significant sign of the Passover meal. And the new covenant has two signs, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? And there's a connection here between the, these two signs, the two covenant meals. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, see. And it's Paul, in Romans chapter 4, it's the Apostle Paul who says that the covenant sign, and he was speaking specifically of circumcision at that point, is also a seal. In other words, it functions as a seal. Well, what is, what is a seal? Well, in the ancient world, a seal served to mark ownership and authenticate an object. You think, of what is it? What, what an illustration would be, would be like a signet ring of a king which had his seal on it. And then he would impress that upon warm wax. And that was a seal. What was written on there were the promises or the decision, right? And that was a sign of what the king intended. And then the seal uh, marked it as authentic. Uh, it also was used to, to denote possession, uh, ownership and so what Paul is saying and when he speaks of, of of what he's writing in Romans 4 is that a sign of a covenant that's promises points to these realities and when that sign is received by faith uh, it functions as a seal you see what I'm saying right so you for example, let's take water baptism. And most of us are familiar with water baptism. Uh, what is the sign of water baptism? It's the water. That's the, that's, the, that's the sign. What is it pointing to? My sins have been washed away. That's the reality it's pointing to. And so we practice baptism of believers by immersion. It points to what? I've been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so that's the realities that the sign points to. And when a person has faith that this is true, that this is what God has done for him or her, and they are baptized, it is a seal. It authenticates them. You belong to the family of God, you see. I've been washed. I've been cleansed, you see. 
Okay, so we have the covenant and its signs and its seal. And these covenant signs, when they become seals, when they're received by faith, they also become identity-shaping. They are identity-shaping signs. It sets people apart, right? This is my identity. If you, you uh, go through water baptism, what is, what is it saying about your identity? You are a Christian. You've been bought with a price. You've been cleansed of your sins. You've died to your old life. You've been raised to a new life. You're alive to God, and you can walk with Him, and so forth. You see. Okay, so now, the two covenant meals. Two covenant meals. Passover, the covenant of Moses, and the Lord's Supper, with the new covenant. These two covenant meals are signs, right? There's a connection between them. There are some strong parallels between the Lord's Supper and Passover, but there are also some, some great distinctions and significant differences we'll be talking about. And again, it's not surprising. I think, I think uh, Dr. Uh, Guy Waters is correct. It, it, it's not surprising that meals are used Uh, as signs and seals for both of these covenants because meals, again, meals are a sign of the restoration, the partial restoration of what Adam, our first parents, lost in the garden. What do they lose? Communion, access to God, fellowship. And so these covenant meals, they function as signs of a, a partial restoration of that intimacy with God, pointing to the full restoration again at the end of this age. Um, so they point us in that direction. And they functioned like that even before the Passover. Uh, as, as I mentioned to you, these meals work like that. Now when God delivered uh, the people of Israel from Egypt, He did so through a sacrifice, right, which was the lamb. We'll be talking about that in a few minutes, and he brought them out of Egypt, when he brought them to Mount Sinai. There they sacrificed, again, sacrifice, blood, and they were to approach God, and then we're told that they shared a meal with God before he handed them the tablets of stone. And there's this passage in Exodus 24 that's always fascinated me, probably many of you, but it's just uh, I can't go into it much today, but this is what he says in Exodus 24. Uh, when they came to Sinai, and Moses took the blood, that is the blood of the sacrifice of the oxen, and so forth, that they had made at that point, uh, he threw it on the people, and he, he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. And then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, they went up, they approached God, and it says, and they saw, they saw the God of Israel. And he describes it in this amazing way, right? That was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And it says, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. In other words, they were at peace with God. And then it says, and they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. <laughs> they sat down to a meal. They ate and they drank with the living God of Israel as, the, uh, as they were entering into this covenant relationship with them. It was sealed in that way. Tremendous. 
And then what did God do when he gave him the law? Uh, what he did is he instituted a whole cycle of meals. He gave to Israel a whole cycle of great feasts that, that shaped the calendar year for Israel every year. There was the Passover meal. There was the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There was the Feast of First Fruits. There was the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets. There was the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There was the Feast of Booths, which lasted eight days of feasting. And each of these feasts were to be joyful celebrations. The goal of each of them was to, was to reinforce central lessons about who God is and who God, what God has been and done for them. The feast reminded them that God is the provider. He makes the, the harvest come about. The feast reminded them that God is our protector. God is our redeemer. God is our savior. Over and over they shared in these feasts. And this, also these feasts gave them gave them again a sort of glimpse of the intimacy that God has designed when the kingdom comes in its fullness, right? And it was an identity-shaping calendar for them. Their feasts, their celebrations set them apart from the other nations. You are a people set apart to God who celebrate his provisions, celebrate his protection, celebrate his redemption, celebrate his atonement, his love, and so forth. And they did this through meals, and they did this for centuries, you see. And so there are the roots. Those are the biblical theological roots of the Lord's Supper. A covenant meal that functions as a sign pointing to the promises of God that are in that covenant which in part cause us to feel and sense a partial restoration of the intimacy of, of communion with the living God in the presence of God. That's the theological, biblical roots of the Lord's Supper. Now let's think about the, the founding or the institution of the Lord's Supper, the new covenant meal. Well, we're told, I read in Luke 22, and we're told in all the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them clearly point out that the Lord's Supper was established in the context of the Passover meal. In each one of those Gospels, the, the author writes that Jesus sent someone ahead to prepare for the Passover meal and then reclined at the Passover meal. The only confusion comes to trying to work in the Gospel of John, but we won't go there. So the, the, the Lord's Supper was instituted in the Passover meal. We refer to that one sometimes as what? The Last Supper. Why? Because it was the last meal that Jesus had with them. But I'm saying to you, it was a Passover meal, is what, is, what, is what it was. And as I read to you that Jesus sent these men ahead to prepare for it, I, th I think it's important just right here to pause and reflect on that, that Jesus, that Jesus the man, consciously and very carefully took all the necessary steps to to prepare for this Passover. And he says, <clears throat> using a very strong word, I, I eagerly desire to have this Passover meal with you. He uses that verb epithumia, which sometimes translated lust. I am 
lusting. I am passionate about having this Passover meal with you. And he made sure that all the preparations were ready. Why would he make sure all the preparations were ready? Did he just want to make sure that they didn't all miss out on dinner? Well, no. Not at all. He wanted to ensure that his disciples would understand the significance and meaning of all that they were going to witness. What? His arrest, his crucifixion, his death, and then later his resurrection. He wants to make sure that they understand the significance of what he was suffering. If not that night, if they won't get it that night, and we know they didn't get it that night, then they'll look back on that night. They'll understand it as they reflect on the Passover. You think about it. Jesus, the man, he's he's fully man. Relying on the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the man, was fully aware of what light ahead for him. And when he asked to prepare that Passover meal. Matthew says this in his gospel, that Jesus said to the disciples, after two days, the Passover's coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. So he thoroughly knew that. He was conscious of it. It's amazing to think of it. It's amazing to think he was conscious of what was going to happen to him when he was sharing the Passover with them. (laughs) What a wonderful picture, I think, this is of God's infinite love for us. And making clear and giving us symbols, giving us a sign. Think about it. He knew his life was about to be sacrificed. He knew his blood was about to be poured out on a cross. He knew what he was going to suffer. He knew to some degree that he was going to suffer this public degradation and intense physical and mental, psychological suffering. And in his love for his disciples, he ensures their understanding. And in ensuring their understanding, he's ensuring our understanding. We sing a song that says this, God is his own interpreter, right? That's true. All the major events, all the major redemptive events in salvation history are not just recorded, but the Bible tells us what they mean. We're not free to infuse them with our own thinking. And so Christ makes sure that the disciples would understand the significance of his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. Well, getting back then to that night, they've come into this room, they're preparing, they're going to have the Passover. <clears throat> there were hundreds of thousands of Jews crowding in Jerusalem, and the Passover was a high point of Jewish worship. It was a high point because it looks back to what? It looks back to the first Passover. It looks back to the Exodus and the great event of redemption from bondage to Egypt, right? Slavery to Egypt. And we should remember that because it it has an impact on our understanding of the Lord's Supper. What happened, excuse me, what happened in the Exodus? What took place um, on that first Passover? Well, remember, that uh, God was visiting judgment upon Egypt for their mistreatment of Israel, to to put it simply, right? And he brought his judgment upon them uh, by virtue, uh, by means of ten plagues. Each plague was a contradiction in opposition to one of their false gods. And the last plague was what? It was the death of the firstborn son. 
And God sent death, as it were. Scripture says an angel of death, an, an angel who would bring death to every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. But he, in his grace and mercy, he provided a means of salvation for his people. Now pause for a moment. Why would he need to provide a way of salvation? Well, because they're no better than the Egyptians. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one who is righteous, you see. And so that night, the judgment of that night was like, it was like a um, microcosmic um, picture of the great judgment to come. It was the judgment of the last day scrolled forward. And when the judgment of the last day comes, all are guilty. But those who are covered will be saved. And so God provided a means of salvation for his people. And what were they to do? They were to take an unblemished lamb. They were to slaughter the lamb. And the blood of the lamb was to be put on what we call now the door frames, right? Doorposts of their houses. And when God's judgment came, when the angel of death came to such a house and he saw the blood, he passed over. Passed over the home where the blood was visible. They needed to exercise faith to put blood on those door frames. Nothing like that had ever been done, right? By faith, they trusted God's word. And they, would spare, they were spared the lost of the firstborn sons in that house, you know. You got to imagine that. In a, very, in a very visible and tangible sense, they saw clearly that this little lamb was a substitute for him, the firstborn son. They saw that clearly. In every house that night in Egypt, either a firstborn son died or a small unblemished lamb died. But there was death everywhere. And so the people were instructed not only to, to cook the animal and, and eat it, but the people were to, to eat the lamb with bitter herbs to signify the bitterness of their captivity for 400 years. And they were to eat unleavened bread uh, to signify the haste of their departure because they were about to rush out. You know, they were about to be set free from Egypt and would leave in a hurry. And so this was the very first Passover, right? This was the historical event that took place in the time of Moses, centuries before the time of Christ. Now, both the Passover and the Lord's Supper are covenant meals that were instituted on the cusp of a great redemptive event that would come about by means of the death of a substitute. Both the Passover and the Lord's Supper right, were instituted on the cusp, on the very edge of a great redemptive event that would come about by means of the death of a substitute resulting in deliverance from bondage, one to Egypt, the other to sin. So you see the parallels. And so Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the midst of that Passover meal that he had been longing to have with his disciples. Now, 
what is the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper? Well, we find the meaning and significance of it in how Jesus related the Lord's Supper to the Passover and how he reinterpreted it by virtue of what he did and what he says, right? And so Passover uh, is also, excuse me, the Lord's Supper and its, and its meaning is also expanded later by Paul as he, as he describes it and speaks about it. You heard me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11. So we could say this, that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper replaced the Passover. We weren't moving from bad to good. That's not it at all. Uh, we, we, weren't, we were moving from promise to fulfillment. We were moving from shadow to reality. We were moving from a little animal lamb to the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when Jesus, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he's not starting some new story. This is part of the story. He's moving the story up to this, the age of fulfillment. This is what all that was pointing to. So this is no plan B, as it were, right? None of the gospel writers mention the Paschal Lamb as being on the table. Um, some make more out of that than I think because Jesus did say prepare the meal and that would have to include the lamb. But the point is, perhaps none of them mention the lamb, only the bread and the wine, because they want our focus to be on what the lamb of God who is not on the table, but at the table. And so I think that's important to note as well. So what does the Lord's Supper mean? What is, the, what is Jesus telling us? What is God telling us in how, we, in how Jesus reinterprets and explains Passover and, and turns it into the Lord's Supper, as it were? Well, here are the things I want to share with you. The Lord's Supper, first of all, and let me, let me say this. I'm not going in the, in the order of importance, nothing like that. I'm moving through, through the order of the Gospel of Luke, okay? That's what, I'm, that's what I'm doing in the night in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. So here's the first thing. The Lord's Supper is a visible declaration of the church's unity in Christ, okay? In other words, to put it this way, the Lord's Supper connects the individual with the community. Here's how we see it. You look at Luke 22, verse 17. It says, He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. In other words, a common cup. And we're told that wasn't common. And so Jesus takes this common cup, and he says, You divide it among yourselves. Paul received it instructions from the Lord and he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 he says verse 16 I read it earlier for you the cup of blessing that we bless he calls that cup that we share the cup of blessing the cup of blessing that we bless isn't not a participation 
in the blood of Christ. That word is koinonia. Is it not a fellowship? We have a fellowship with the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a fellowship? Koinonia, participation in the body of Christ. And then he makes this point. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And so Paul could have easily added there, and we drink from the one cup, and so forth. And so it's important to see that. The Lord's Supper connects the individual with the body, with the community. It declares our union with one another by way of our union with Christ. We are one body, and this, is, uh, this was accentuated on that night when Jesus said what he did to the disciples and accentuated in the early church. These churches met in homes, right? So they could do that more naturally. Now, of course, we lost some of the power of that symbolism, don't we, when we pass around little cups. And we all take little wafers. Right? But in some traditions, a loaf is still maintained. Or, and of course, throughout church history, there was various groups that practiced in different ways. And by the time people start discovering how plagues are, are spread, they said, no more common cops, you know, and so forth. So there were some very practical reasons, steps that people chose. But that's the first thing I want you to see. What is the Lord's Supper telling us? It's telling us, that we are united to one another, that the individual is connected to the body. There's one bread, one cup, one Savior, one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, right? Secondly, the Lord's Supper points forward in anticipation to the great messianic banquet to come. And Jesus told parables about the messianic banquet when the Messiah with his disciples and the people of God, the true believers would would gather. Note that Jesus says until, back in, in the Gospel of Luke again, verse 18, I tell you from, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Until. It's pointing forward to that messianic banquet. What Jesus is talking about is the consummation of the kingdom of God when he will be returned bodily. He's talking about the second coming. The kingdom of God had come in Jesus. The Gospels tell us that the king is here, so the kingdom's here. And Paul says that the, you're in the kingdom of God when you're a Christian because he transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom in its open consummation, covering the earth, right? He says, when, that, when the kingdom comes, then I'll sit down again with you. <laughs> at the great messianic banquet, pointing forward to what again? The restoration of, of communion with God and intimacy with our Creator. John, the apostle, was given a vision of this in Revelation 19 and verse 6. And John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. That's going to be unbelievable. <laughs> Have your hearts ever been lifted up when you're in a room 
maybe in here when, there's, when the room was full and we're all praising God with one voice. Yeah. I feel that way when I go to some of these large conferences like Together for the Gospel or, or the Gospel Coalition. You have 4,000, 5,000 pastors and church leaders, people worshiping a cappella. It's amazing. Well, all of that is just a little sort of taste of what this is going to be like. And then John goes on and says this, what he says. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the church, right? And then he says, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. If you have faith, the scripture's true then this is God's word to you. If you're a Christian, that you're blessed because you have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. An intimacy beyond imagination. And so the supper points forward. And what it does is it connects your life, whatever's going on in your life, connects it to God's promised future. What was life like for you this last few weeks? You're blessed. You got a ticket to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God's going to make all things right. This is not the time for all things to be made right. You're blessed. It points your life to the future kingdom of God. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper points backward, right? We're, we're familiar with this. The Lord's Supper points backward as a commemoration and proclamation of the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. And so it links the present with the past. It points to the death of Christ, which was a sacrifice, and it was an atonement. It was a payment, and it was on, on behalf of others, right? It was a substitutionary death. And Jesus stressed this, you know. He stressed this when he, when he uh, founded and instituted the Lord's Supper. You know, by the time of Jesus, by the time of Jesus, the, the Passover meal had been given other traditions that are not in the Scriptures. They're not in the Old Testament. But the Passover meal ha ha had been given added um, recitations and a certain amount of cups, right? Four cups and so forth. And so... It was a meal with these well-known rituals and these well-known words. And you can imagine the disciples are expecting Jesus to say them, right? Now, the disciples have been with Jesus for three years, so perhaps they've already had two Passovers with them, and he, and he led them then. We don't know, and he, maybe he did it just the way a, a Jewish father in his household would do it. But here they come, and they're, they're in this room with Jesus, and he reinterprets what's going on in the Passover. He says new things that they, they were not expecting, you see. And in a, in a typical Jewish home, the head of the home would take the bread and he'd break it and, he'd, and, and he would give thanks. And he'd take the cup as well. And then a child, if there was a child in the home, would ask the question, how is this night unlike any other night, Right? And the father would answer, he would, 
he would recite what had become tradition by then. No doubt Jesus knew this. And the father would say, when he broke the bread, he would say this. He'd say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate. Jesus takes the bread, he breaks that. They're already hearing that in their heads. They know where he's going. And suddenly he says, this is my body which is given for you. What's he saying? He's saying, this is the bread of my affliction. Not theirs. No more will we remember that affliction. But from here on, you'll remember my affliction. This bread is my body. And it's given for you. Now, this is one of those statements, of course, where that launched the great debates in the, at the time of the Reformation when he said, this is my body. And the great debate, of course, was over what does is mean, right? This is my body. And by then, the medieval Catholic, by then, the medieval Roman Catholic Church taught the doctrine of transubstantiation that the bread actually became the body of Christ. The blood actually became the body of Christ, was transformed into this is. The, of course, that's not at all what anyone sitting around Jesus would have thought. Why? Because his body's right there. <laughs> It's right there. There's his body. Jesus is a, a true man. And so we, we, we know that he's saying this bread represents my body. Just like when he said, I'm the bread of life. He didn't mean he's a loaf of bread. When he says, I am the door, he doesn't mean I have a handle and hinges, right? He doesn't mean these things literally. But he is conveying spiritual reality, spiritual truths. And of course, the reformers even themselves divided over then. Well, if they all disagreed that that was the case, but then what is it? We won't get any more into that today, but it's just it's so sad that that was the case. But what we do know is that Jesus infused this new significance and ended the Passover celebration, set aside their tradition, and gave us this new understanding. From now on, you eat this bread, and this bread represents my affliction, my body, which is given for you. And perhaps a better word to focus on today is the word for. The little preposition means on behalf of and instead of. This is my body of affliction. It is going to be given later tonight on your behalf and instead of you. All I do, all I'm going to suffer tonight Beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, I will do on your behalf. It is for you. And so Jesus was saying, just as the lamb was sacrificed and died on that first Passover, on behalf of, instead of that firstborn son, I am giving my body on your behalf instead of you so that you will not suffer the wrath of God when that day of judgment comes upon humanity. But you will be covered covered by my sacrifice and my imputed righteousness to you. That's what he was saying. This speaks of my body and my sacrifice. And then he takes the cup. The cup after the meal, verse 20. Again, not going into the discussion of various cups, but he takes the cup after the meal, verse 20. Likewise, 
after they had eaten, and so you picture now what after they'd eaten, he's done with the Passover meal. All that is set aside. That, that era, that era has come to an end. Moses and the, the eras of the, the covenant with Moses, that's come to an end. Now he takes the, the cup and he shows it to them. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Tremendous, right? Poured out, he says, not spilled. Not spilled, but poured out. Why? Because on that day, on that very day between 3 p.m. and evening, hundreds, perhaps thousands of lambs were being sacrificed on the last Passover from Jesus' perspective. And their blood was, was not spilled was not spilled. It was poured out. Their blood was caught by the priest carefully in a basin. And then that blood was carried by the priest and it was poured out on the altar. And so Jesus is, Jesus is, is setting in motion the end of that and the beginning of what? His own sacrifice and the blessings of the new covenant. The new covenant that God had made with Israel and Judah. In Jeremiah 31, he promised it in the book of Ezekiel as well. But Paul says, we, uh, we Gentiles, we non-Jews, we are, we are grafted into that olive tree of promise. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Paul says that Jesus has created one new man, not Jew and Gentile separate, but Jew and Gentile together, one new man, and we receive the blessings that were promised to Judah and Israel in the new covenant. What were these blessings? Listen to the promise of, uh, in, the, in, in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it down on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so Jesus says, this new covenant is being actualized. It begins tonight. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all that the priests did, everything that happened on the Day of Atonement, all of those things, everything in the Passover meal, all these things pointed to this night and what I'm going to do. Why is this night different than all others? Because the Lamb of God is going to lay down His life on behalf of, of His people, and He is going to put in motion all the blessings of the New Covenant the forgiveness of our sins forever by means of one sacrifice, once for all, having the law of God not on tablets of stone, but written in our hearts through what? The new birth and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. 
And everyone who is truly in the new covenant doesn't have to be told, know the Lord. Why? Because if you are in the new covenant, you know the Lord. (laughs) That's why you're in it, you see. So this is what Jesus was saying. The Lord's Supper is that sign and that meal that confirms all the new covenant blessings to the believer's conscience. In other words, it connects the believer, your soul, to God in all his blessings. The gospel in drama every time we come to our senses, right? That's why the Lord Jesus on the day of his crucifixion said, it is finished. And the moment he died, the old covenant ended, and what happened to the curtain in the temple dividing access to the Holy of Holies? That curtain was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. And God was saying, that era is done, not bad, just preparatory, just promise. And now the era of what? Fulfillment. It's come. So Jesus, I'm sure, it's hard to imagine this, but to put yourself in the psyche of Jesus, a man who knows what he's going to suffer, who loves the disciples so much he wants to make sure they understand. And then these men who are around him at this point, including Judah, excuse me, Judas. And what he's, when, he, when, he, when he changed the words, what was going through their mind? In essence, he was saying, no longer are you going to remember Moses and what he said and what all our, what all our, uh, our forefathers have practiced for centuries. You're going to do all this in remembrance of me. I am the Lamb of God. And we know they didn't perceive the significance of it all because the Gospels tell us within minutes they were once again arguing over who was the greatest. And before we say, what a bunch of, you know, you think about yourself. And what I mean is this, what keeps us from enjoying the deep and profound message of the Lord's Supper? Well, it may not be the same things they were wrestling with, We also are dull sometimes. (laughs) And we need to remind ourselves, what is God saying to us? So the Lord's Supper, beloved, is this perpetual covenant meal until he comes. A perpetual ordinance to remember Christ's sacrifice. It is the ongoing covenant rite of the new covenant. It is that repeated meal which proclaims to us over and over the gospel blessings and it defines who we are. It tells us we're connected with each other. It tells us that we are the people of God. It tells us our sins are forgiven. It tells us that God has written the law in our hearts. It tells us that we are safe with God. He's saying, come, come to my table. The Lord's Supper is therefore a celebration just like all the other feasts were. A celebration of joy, of of Christ's victory over our sin and our guilt. I need to emphasize some of that sometimes because at points, there are some traditions and I've been in them and there's times when maybe you've you've done this as well where you've been at a, a Lord's Supper gathering where it's just so gloomy. It's all gloomy. And it's like they're singing nothing but dirges. And the emphasis is on what? is on the tragedy of the fact that Jesus had to die for my sin. 
Oh, that may be but a moment of reality that you should think about and confess your sin. But the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the finished work of Christ. He's not on a cross. He rose from the dead. And your sins are forgiven you. And so it is a celebration. More, More about that next week. It connects you, the individual, with the community. It points you, it connects you, the present with the past. It points to the to the future, and God ministers these realities to us in the present, right? And that has a powerful effect upon our consciences when all of that is mingled with what? Faith, faith, taking God at his word. In, in, the, in the Lord of the Rings, I know probably not all of you have watched that or read the books, but... Uh, Good number of you have, I think. In the, in, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, and I'm thinking right now, especially in the movie because of the way it was dramatized, the Pippin, one of the characters, he's, remember, he's in the city and it's besieged and it's surrounded, that is to say, and he's sure that, that he's going to die and all of them are going to die because there's all these uh, horrible warriors around them coming upon them. And at the last minute, he hears a distant horn, right? And of course, the... the the, the saviors come, right? The, uh, they come, come on, come on down, and they deliver them uh, from certain death, and many of them die in that battle as well. Well, it was brought to my attention by someone that not in the movie, but in the book, there's another detail, and I hadn't read the books in a long time, but this is the detail in the book. There, if you read the book, we're told that for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn off in the distance without breaking into tears. And why was that? Because that horn was a sign. It was a sign of a great mercy, a great deliverance, and he could not forget those who gave their life for his. And it made him think that every day I have is a gift because I should have died on that day. I think he also said, wait a second, in the book, to just shorten it up, that no matter how grumpy he was, when he heard that horn, couldn't be grumpy anymore and I think that I can make this comment here that some of our deepest struggles with our our own hearts our thoughts our disappointments our discouragements our bitternesses our slowness to forgive all these things can be rooted in the fact to some degree that we have not heard the horn as we're supposed to. Because when you come to the Lord's Supper, what God is saying to you and me, is your, your worst problem has already been taken care of. Your sins are forgiven you. And whatever's happening in the present, you're gonna be seated at the banquet. And whatever wrongs are you experiencing, they will all be made right. And so we're not listening to the horn enough. We stay grumpy. (laughs) Stay mad. 
slow to forgive. Scripture says if, if anyone has a complaint against anyone, forgive one another just as the Lord forgave you. And when did he forgive you? When you cleaned up your life? No, he went to the cross that night that Peter denied him three times. Let's pray and finish our time together. Lord, we do come to your feet.